This morning we're going to be looking at two scripture passages, an Old Testament scripture passage, Psalm 2. Um, that great psalm about the kingship of Jesus Christ. Psalm 2. And the New Testament scripture passage is going to be John chapter 18, verses 33 through 38. So, uh, before we read God's word, will you please pray with me for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open up our hearts, our eyes, our ears, our minds to the truth of your word. May it be what we cling to when all else seems so unsteady and unsure. May it be our firm footing when the foundation has given out. May it be, Lord, that Jesus Christ would be the rock we stand on, and Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God. And this morning we pray that you would give us your grace, that you would show us Christ our Lord. Renew us and revive us by the reading and preaching of your inspired, infallible revelation. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Psalm 2. Hear now the reading of God's word. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That is Psalm chapter 2. John chapter 18, verse 33 through 38. We continue on in the narrative of Jesus' arrest, his trial before the religious leaders, and now being brought before Pilate. Verse 33 through 38. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, 
And for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. And we'll stop the reading there. Thus is the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Christ the King. We are uh, often seeing this. We uh, sang many uh, songs this morning about Christ's kingdom. Christ shall have dominion. Um, I gave you God's greeting from Revelation chapter 1. Christ, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Psalm 2, a great psalm about the kingship of Jesus Christ. We're so used to saying it that maybe the passage this morning doesn't seem interesting to us. It doesn't present us with a question like it might have at the time with Pilate. And that question is this. It's a question I want us to think of as we go to God's word and we look at it. And that's this. What kind of king is this? What kind of king is this Jesus? And I want to read to you a, a poem that talks a little bit about the kind of king that Jesus is. All of the power of heaven and earth God had invested in him. He is to die on the cross, descend into hell, meet the devil, and take the keys from him. So he yielded himself to the death on the cross, cried, it's finished, and bowed to die. In the regions of hell, the devil celebrated, we've destroyed the king, he cried. In the midst of the celebration, footsteps were heard walking the corridors of hell. The shouting stopped when a voice rang out, t'was a voice that rang like a bell. Satan trembled as he recognized him who came to deliver his own. Oh, shut and lock the gates, he cried, don't let him ascend to his throne. So the gate swung shut in the face of the king to prove God's salvation untrue. But he shook hell's gates and cried, Lift up your heads, the king is coming through. So out of the devil's prison house went a procession led by the king, shouting, Now, O grave, where is your victory and where, O death, thy sting? Who is this king of glory? The Lord God, the Lord God mighty in battle is he. Who is the king of glory, maker of heaven and earth supreme? Who is the king of glory, the one that not even death could stop? Who is this king of glory? Why, he's the babe in the manger and the little boy from the carpenter shop. Christ is not a king like other kings. Like worldly kings like political kings. And here in this passage, we are continually presented with the contrast that I talked about last Sunday, right? Christ or Caesar. Christ is Lord or Caesar is Lord. 
Ketty in his commentary says, in the end, the great question is Christ or Caesar. At the interface between Christian and government, the issue always comes down to whose authority is to prevail in spiritual, ethical, and political matters on which the claims of the word of God have an impact. What we're being presented with here is the question, who will we choose? A king who is not of this world or a king who is of this world. Our theme this morning, we have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. If you are a believer this morning, this is true of you. You've been rescued. You've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness, which is in alignment with, in correlation with, the kingdom of Caesar, the kingdom of the world, right? And you've been brought out of that into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is why the Bible is chock full of images like we are citizens of heaven. We belong to a city whose foundation has been laid by God. We are not truly at home here. We are new creations who are destined for a future in a new heaven and a new earth. And we are people who are dedicated to Patriots of a nation and a king who is sitting on a throne in heaven. We've got two points this morning. The first is, what's this all about? They're questions. As we are pondering what kind of king this is, these are going to help us determine that. Uh, The first question is, what's this all about? It's the way that Pilate responds to Jesus. That's really the question he's asking. And the second point is, what kind of king are you, Jesus? What kind of king are you? So what's this all about? Remember, prior to this passage this morning, the Jews led Jesus to uh, uh, Pilate's palace. Pilate came out and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? They said, he's a criminal. Obviously, we brought him here. Um, then they said, but we can't execute him, you have to execute him, and this all happened to prove the kind of death that Jesus was going to die, and that was going to be the death of crucifixion, the death of being cursed on a tree. And so, after this interaction that Pilate has with the Jews, he goes back inside the palace where Jesus is, he brought Jesus in there, and he asks him a question. The question he asks, remember, in the courtroom of the Jews... Jesus' crime was, you're a blasphemer. You're claiming equality with God. You're blaspheming God. You deserve the death penalty. But in the realm of the Roman rulers and authorities, his crime is that he is a political usurper. He's a person who has a political claim that's going to cause riots and chaos. He is a counter-king to the king Caesar. And so, Pilate asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? What you need to imagine is is Pilate pacing around his palace, thinking and saying to himself, oh, these Jews, they're so frustrating. They're so annoying. They're all crazy. I mean, it's Jesus. The whole lot of them, they're just, they're, they're out of their minds. Like a nuisance that's in the way of what he really wants to do. And so his question, are you the king of the Jews, it's, it's not really a serious one. It's not one 
that is truly wondering, truly pondering who this Jesus is. It's more of a sarcastic way of saying, what's this really all about anyway? Why am I having to deal with this? It wasn't a serious question. It was dismissive. And this is why Jesus responds the way he responds. He says, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? This is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, Pilate, why don't you think for yourself? Why don't you actually ponder that question in seriousness? Don't dismiss it. Pilate could not be bothered, so Jesus' response calls him to think for himself. Consider the real question at hand. What kind of king is this Jesus? You see, a direct answer wouldn't have helped Pilate's understanding of the real issue. If Christ had simply answered, yes, I'm the king of the Jews, then Pilate would have no reason not to regard him and punish him as a pretender to political power. But this also would have permitted Pilate to apply his own flawed and shallow definition of kingship. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, yes. And in Pilate's mind, what king of the Jews means is, well, sort of like the way he rules. With an iron fist. And if somebody doesn't do what you want, off with his head. Well, Pilate would be very familiar with the corruption and the worldliness of politics and the life of the Roman Empire. So king means something entirely different to him. It means something entirely different to him. But if he had simply answered no, are you the king of the Jews? No. Meaning that he did not aspire to temporal political kingship. He would have been technically correct, but also greatly misleading. If he understood Pilate's question as saying, are you someone who is going to cause political unrest? Are you someone who is aspiring to overthrow the Roman rulership of the Jewish people? He could have answered, no, that's not what I want to do. Early in the Gospel of John, remember, they tried to take Jesus and make him king. And what the word tells us, what the Gospel of John tells us is that Jesus left. He went away. He doesn't want that kind of kingship. That's not what his kingship is. But the truth is, he is indeed king of Israel. Not just, not in the way that Pilate is thinking. So there needs to be a distinction made when we're thinking about that question, right? What kind of king is this? There needs to be a distinction made between the way Pilate is thinking about a political kingship of the Jews and the theological kingship 
of messianic prophecy and fulfillment, the, the kingship that Psalm 2 is talking about. You understand that, right? That the Jews went to Psalm 2 and they read Psalm 2 and they believed that what Psalm 2 was talking about was that there was going to be an anointed one, a Messiah, a Christ. That he was going to be the son of God. He was going to be of the Davidic line. And he was going to come and he was going to take over the world. Bring all the nations into subjection to the kingdom of Israel. Well, that's not what Christ has come to do. At least not in that way. In verse 35, Pilate Responds, am I a Jew? It's your people, your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? This is just simply an expression of frustration. Another way of saying this shouldn't be my problem. Your own people brought you up on charges for their own reasons, whatever they may be. And then Pilate presents a question to Jesus. An opportunity to defend himself. An opportunity for him to speak. They're, they're saying, these Jews are saying, you've committed a crime. What have you done, Jesus? And when he does that, he, he passes the buck to him. He gives Jesus the initiative. Provides him with an opportunity to explain the true nature of his kingship. And from this point on, Christ is responding to Pilate's question in this way. He's telling him the Jews are not bringing me to you because of what I've done, but because of who I am. Because of who I am. And let's talk about who he is. What kind of king are you? This Jesus. His response in verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. So we're going to look at three points. A kingdom not from the world. A kingdom not of this world, and a kingdom up against the world. And this outline is taken from Ketty's commentary. A very helpful way to look at this. A kingdom not from the world. There's been a lot of misunderstanding about verse 36. As if to say that Christ's kingdom is only a heavenly kingdom. That there isn't a future new heavens and new earth. That there isn't going to be a physical place where Christ's throne is going to be. That this whole world that we see now, yes, it's going to be changed. It's going to be refined. It's going to be stripped away of all of its impurities and the curse and all the sin. But as if to say that Christ's kingdom is only spiritual. It's only heavenly is not true. It's not what he's saying. It's not from the world. My kingdom is not of this world. It's not from the world. The point here is not to launch into a discussion on the kingdom of God and the mediatorial kingship of Jesus Christ, but it's to make clear the distinction between Christ's actual kingship and that of the Jews' charges against him. This is what he's saying. 
Jesus is saying, I'm not a territorial or political king in nature. My kingdom is of a different character altogether. And all you need to realize to know that that's true is the fact that there can be citizens of that kingdom in every different earthly kingdom and political territory and association. There are citizens of the kingdom of God in North Korea. There are citizens of the kingdom of God in China. There are citizens of the kingdom of God in Africa. In every continent, in every country, in every nation, in every political affiliation, there is kingdoms of the citizens, or citizens of that kingdom. But Jesus gives a proof as well. He says, if it were of this world, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. He raised no rebellion against the authorities, Jewish or Roman. He was a peaceful man. And all you need to do is look back a few pages to where Jesus rebuked Peter, drawing the sword in the garden and cutting off that man's ear. He even went as far as to heal that ear to show that the way that Christ's kingdom goes forward and moves forward, it's not by the sword. It's not by might. It's not by power. Have you ever wondered why the kings in Israel were told, do not build up for yourselves large armies and many chariots and horses. Trust in the Lord. Christ's kingdom is not built by violence and rebellion. And he cannot be charged with being a revolutionary whose goal is to overthrow the powers that be. Christ's kingdom is built by changed hearts who turn from their wicked ways because of the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit and who find in Jesus Christ not only a perfect Savior, but a good Lord and King. His kingdom is not from here. I don't think the NIV translation helps us very well here. It says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. The actual Greek wording there is not from here. My kingdom is not from here. This is a statement of origin. Remember John's gospel, right? The repeating theme that Christ is the one who came down from up above and who must return to that place. He is the one that's come down from heaven. The origin of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is not a worldly origin. That's what he's saying. It is a kingdom that is not characterized like other worldly kingdoms. It's altogether different in nature. I want you to think back to that Old Testament moment. Samuel, the last judge of Israel. The people of Israel come to him and they say, We want a king like the other nations.
And Samuel is distraught because he says, it's that they don't want me. And God says, it's not you they don't want. It's me. And Samuel comes out and he warns him and he says, if you want a king like the world, if you want a worldly king, if you want a sinful king, this is what you're going to get. You're going to get burdened. You're going to get slavery. You're going to get a 10% tax on everything. Your children, your, your daughters, your Sons will go off to war, your fields, your everything. And that's a picture of sin, isn't it? A picture of sin is we see what's in the world and we want it. And it looks good to us. We desire it. We desire to be in the kingdom of the world and have the things that the world has. Our sinful hearts want that. But then once we have that, we realize how empty it is. We realize how much we are now enslaved, how much is being taken from us, how much we are dying because of it. How in essence what we've said is, we don't want you. We don't want you, Christ. We want We want Caesar. It's not only a kingdom not from the world, it's a kingdom not of this world. Verse 37, Pilate responds, you are a king then. Keep in mind, he's still thinking in the political sense, he's still thinking in the worldly sense, right? You are a king then. And Jesus answered, you're right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born And for this, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. So the question now is, if you are a king, then what kind of king are you? If if you're not a political king, if you're not a territorial king, then what other kind of king is there? And Christ gives a three-part answer to this question. He's the king of the kingdom He describes the character of the kingdom and he describes the citizens of the kingdom. He does affirm that he's a king. In fact, he was born for that very reason, predestined to be king. God's prophesied, preordained, appointed king. Psalm 2 says, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash into pieces like pottery. That is true of Jesus. He is the anointed one, the Christ the Mashiach, the Messiah, the one that it was to come and be the king of Israel, the king of a new kingdom. But the character of the kingdom is to be that of truth. Christ preached the truth in connection with the way of salvation through his death. He told his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Christ's kingdom is a kingdom of truth, not an abstract but truth as it is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So if you want to know the character of the kingdom of God, look to Jesus. Look to his preaching. One only need look at the the gospel of Matthew, where over and over again, Christ preaches of the kingdom. He preaches of the kingdom. 
Go to Luke, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. Matthew, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. The end of the book of Acts. Paul was in Rome and he taught of the kingdom as he stayed there, right? Listen to what the book of Acts says at the end of the book of Acts. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. What about the citizens of the kingdom? If the character of the kingdom is truth as it is revealed in Jesus Christ, then the citizens of the kingdom are those who know the truth. On the side of the truth. Or of the truth. And they listen to Jesus. They hear his voice. They are the sheep and he is the shepherd. And those who are given the gift of life by the spirit of God and receive newness of life by faith in Christ are now citizens of heaven. Therefore, the citizens of this kingdom can be found throughout the kingdoms of this world. This really is a a personal challenge, though, isn't it, to Pilate? Christ is, in effect, calling Pilate to hear his voice. Do you know that I am the king of a kingdom of truth? And my citizens, they are those who are on the side of the truth. Pilate, will you be on the side of truth? The truth is like that, isn't it? It knocks at your door. It demands an answer. It cannot be delayed. It will not be deferred. You have to answer, don't you? The question is, what will Pilate do with it? What will I do with it? What will you do with it? What will we do with it? So finally, it's a kingdom up against the world. This is what Pilate does with being presented with a kingdom and a king whose maker and builder is God, a city whose foundation cannot be shaken. What is truth? I really should say Pilate said, not asked. I don't think he's really wanting a response to this question. He's uninterested. He knows now that Jesus is no political subversive and that the case against him is a sham, a ploy to try to get him to dispose of a good man in order that the ruling Jewish class could, help, uh, could keep their theological status quo and all their wonderful power that they have. But he also no longer wanted Jesus to challenge the status quo of his own thinking. Of the way that he's chosen to live his life. When Pilate was confronted with the question, Christ or Caesar, he stayed in the comfort 
of what he knew, where he had privileges. He chose Caesar. You see, this question, it's not a Greek philosopher at work, pondering the deepest things, asking the most profound questions. What is truth? I think, I think, therefore, I am. Is there any such thing as objective truth, or is, is truth all subjective? Is, is, uh, I mean, you might hear it all the time today. I'm living my truth. I'm living my truth. This is my truth. Pilate doesn't want an answer. He's enslaved to his skepticism, and he wants to keep it that way. The truth, Jesus Christ himself, the embodiment of truth, is staring him right in the face, and he cannot and will not see it. You see, in our day and age, many people will call themselves agnostic. It basically just means, I don't know. I don't know. Agnostic means without knowledge. But often, so-called agnostics who retreat into inconclusive neutrality, and they say to themselves, well, there could be a God, or there could not be a God. I'm indecisive. They like to think of themselves as being on a higher plane. They're outside the battle or discussion of truth altogether. They don't make any claims. They, in fact, reject the truth under the guise of pondering it indefinitely. So agnostics are really atheists. They've set off the need to answer, and deep down they know they will never answer. Ketty says, a theoretical agnostic is just a practical atheist in the grip of the illusion that lofty indecision is a higher form of knowledge. They feel superior because, well, I'm not like those Christians who believe undoubtedly that there's a God, and I'm not like those atheists who believe undoubtedly that there isn't a God. I'm in between. What is truth? D.A. Carson in his commentary defers then by Pilate's response to Jesus, him saying, what is truth? That he proves he's not among those whom the Father has given to the Son, at least not in this moment. And this is an illustration of another reality of Christ's kingdom isn't it? It faces opposition from the world. It's a kingdom that's against the world, up against the world. Eyes are shut, ears are stopped, hearts are hard, consciences seared, minds closed against the claims of heaven's king and the message of truth. Just like Psalm 2, the nations rage and the Lord in heaven laughs. Just like in Psalm 2, the nations are told, kiss the Son before His wrath comes. And if this was, if this was our situation, and we were unaided 
by the wonderful power of God's Holy Spirit at work in the preaching of God's word and the gospel going out into the kingdoms, we would be without hope. If there was not a perfect sacrifice in the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, who has promised us he has died for his sheep and each and every one of them will be redeemed, then we would have no hope. But this kingdom, we are promised will not be stopped even by the very gates of hell. Not because of us, but because of what God has done in Jesus Christ and how what God has done in Jesus Christ is working out in and through our lives. For all, the answer to the question, Christ or Caesar, without the intervention of amazing grace, is always and will always be Kaiser Curios. Caesar is Lord. But is that not what makes the grace that we have received in Jesus Christ? So amazing. We don't deserve it. Our hearts have been changed so profoundly that once what was a heart that always put its trust and hope in the ways of the world, even though that was a path of destruction, has been transformed to a heart that loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Calvin says, truth is believed to be a common thing, but God declares on the contrary that it far exceeds the capacity of human understanding. We scarcely find on person in ten, or we we scarcely find one person in ten who attends to the first and elementary instructions. And why is this? But because they measure the secret wisdom of God by their own understanding. What we're being confronted with here is that it takes death on a cross to kill the sin of self-deceit. To kill the sin of believing your own lie so convincingly, so profoundly, that you cannot be steered away from this disillusion. That it would take the death on the cross to open the eyes of the spiritually blind and open the ears of the spiritually deaf. What kind of king is this? Who is this king of glory? The Lord God mighty in battle is he who is this king of glory, maker of heaven and earth supreme. Who is the king of glory, the one that not even death could stop? Who is this king of glory? Why, he's the babe in the manger and the little boy from the carpenter's shop. So what will be your choice? What will be our choice today? We're presented with this choice every day of our lives. Will we be a citizen of the kingdom a believer in the truth of Jesus Christ, a listener to the voice of the shepherd? Or will we be opposed to this kingdom 
be deniers of the truth and follow after the ways of this world. And see Caesar as Lord. The choice is set before us. If you have not chosen Christ, I plead with you to turn to him, to repent of your sins, to believe in him. If you are someone who has placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then I pray that you would know that you have believed because you've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and that you would see the grace of Jesus Christ all the more clearly and all the more beautifully, and you would praise him for it, and you would live your life in accordance with that grace that you've received. We've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Christos, kurios. Christ is Lord. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray that the Lordship of Jesus Christ would be a comfort to us. The knowing that he is ruling and reigning over us and through us would be a great wonder to us knowing that we are undeserving of that grace. We pray that this week we would be given the grace we need to live as citizens of the kingdom. And in all our hardships, we will always look forward to the day where that kingdom will be revealed in its fullness. Not only our bodies and our hearts and our minds will be resurrected. All sin and all brokenness and all sickness and all curse will be eradicated. But so also will this earth be purified, refined. And we shall live with you forever as priests in the kingdom. It's Christ's name we pray. Amen.